Hello, welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Tom Lutz. My guest today is Toby Miller, Distinguished Professor of Media and Cultural Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author or editor of some 30 books and over 100 articles on television, film, sports, citizenship, cultural policy, and other subjects, and he regularly contributes to The Guardian and other publications as well. He's here in our studios today to talk about his latest book, co-authored with Richard Maxwell, on the environmental impact of digital technology. It's called Greening the Media, and it's just out from Oxford University Press. Welcome, Toby. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. So uh, I want you to tell me uh, a number of things about about your new book, uh, Greening the Media. Um, but uh, the first one is something that you know I was actually very proud of here, which was that we're not killing any trees to make the Los Angeles Review of Books. And um, uh, after reading your book, I'm not so sure that uh, we have found the green alternative to killing trees. Um, how do you how do, how do you figure out whether it's a better idea to do something like put out a daily newspaper or to have your newspaper online? That's a really complicated question. So you can already feel the fence poking through my trousers at this point. Because to be honest, right now we need to be fence sitting on this. There are lots of different systems that are used. There's no agreed single system for measuring the carbon impact of doing things entirely digitally versus doing things in paper form. Uh, just to give a couple of examples to amplify that point, because it's obviously counterindicative. We all think, oh, Maybe journalists are losing jobs, but at least we're not killing all those trees by not getting the paper delivered every morning, exactly. right? Exactly. We all think that. The, there are several problems with this. First of all, North America, excluding Mexico, is a place of lots of forests, as we know. Therefore, there's been hugely bountiful paper product available in Canada and the United States for a very, very long time. And for a long time, the United States has been and continues to be the biggest consumer of paper. And there are all kinds of bad things ecologically about that, from water use through to you know, cutting down trees. But it's also been the world's greatest replenisher of trees. And in terms of, for example, being able to suck up the carbon and get rid of it in safe ways, young trees are better at doing that than old trees. Hmm. So if you've got a lot of new fresh growth, that's very good at getting rid of the bad things that are causing, amongst other things, global warming. So that's one factor that makes it complicated. There's also the factor that uh, if you look around the United States, but not only here where we are, but uh, in Europe, in Latin America, really all over the world, one of the biggest institutional building projects around the globe is creating server farms, i.e. these gigantic storage facilities. From our day, Tommy would think of them as being like telephone exchanges. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to see this or the L.A. Department of Water and Power here in Los Angeles, these gigantic buildings with no windows, where no, there seems to be no life, but you always knew, oh, that's the phone exchange. Do you know right. what I mean when you were a kid growing up? These server farms are the modern-day equivalent. They're all over the world, and they're using gigantic amounts of electricity not only to store and send data you know, every time we do a Google search, for example, but also to cool themselves. Because as you know from the iMac you've got in front of you, as that wears on through the afternoon, it's going to give off more and more and more heat. So these institutions use gigantic amounts of electricity, of energy, simply to sustain themselves in addition to send out all the information that you get. And when someone picks up their tablet and reads the Los Angeles Review of Books, the amount of energy they're using will depend a lot on the time of day that they're doing it, where the signal's coming from, where it's going, and all the rest of it, in mm. ways that wouldn't apply if they were reading, say, 
God forbid, the New York Review of Books or the London Review of Books in mm -hmm. conventional paper form. And obviously the carbon uh, footprint is an important part of the calculation, but there are other calculations that need to be made as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we also need to think about, for example, the nature of a technology that we're reading it on. It's not just carbon footprint and electricity at an obvious level. It's also the fact that the machinery that we're using, the gadgets that we all love, myself included. Uh, Rick Maxwell, my co-author on the book, and I love gadgets. You know, we're not immune to their blandishments by any means. Um, those things also have their own carbon footprint in terms of how they're constructed, where they're constructed, how they're transported. If you remember back 10 or 15 years, Tom, when in the Midwest in particular in the United States, there were all those campaigns against colleges that were selling T-shirts and football jerseys that had been made through sweated labor. Right, I think right. Madison was a real center for that. I don't sure. know whether Iowa was too, but sure. a lot of the kind of Big Ten schools were really important in that. A lot of radical young students did great work. Finally, we saw the textile clothing and footwear industry get its act together. Well, it's infinitely harder for me to tell you the real impact ecologically of these gadgets than it would be with a T-shirt, where pretty much they're made in one place, they're transported to another. Apple, for example, manufactures its various goods, although it says it's not a manufacturer, it says it's a designer mm -hmm. on its IRS right, forms, course. the same way that Nike used to do. It manufactures them sometimes in maybe dozens of places, and those dozens of places are incredibly hard for us to track in terms of a global supply chain. And they include, of course, some of the minerals that come from China or particularly from Congo that have been very important in terms of the horrendous civil war in Congo, five million lives claimed. Coltan, which is this compound that is crucial to circuitry, it's in every cell phone and so on, is uh, mostly found as a compound uh, there and it's mined there and some of the processing is done there, often by people who are enslaved, often by people who are murdered, people who were raped, subject to the most incredible privation. So if we want to do an audit, both ecologically and in human terms, of the technologies we're using, it's immensely complicated. The commodity chain is snaking all over the world, and the various things that go on there are destructive and frightening in many cases, at the same time as when they come to us, they're beautiful and functional. Yeah, and so the math is, is as you say, just incredibly complicated. So the, it's not just uh, the the uh, people in the Congo mining the, the the minerals. It's also the the civil war spilling over into Central African Republic and into all of the other neighboring countries. It's just a, it's the if you calculate the human costs um, of that one ingredient. Um, right? But the same, of course, could be said for for oil that is required to move the New York times across the country. Oh, absolutely. Uh, right, There's no question about that. Around the city. Now, when it comes to the metric, if we cut out the stuff about human lives, <laughs> and we... <laughs> well, that will make it easier. Let's yes. just leave that out. That makes everything simpler. <laughs> let's forget an entire continent. No, but more seriously... <laughs> If we focus simply on the ecological metric, mm -hmm. even there, there's no agreed system. There are about half a dozen different competing private sector, non-government organizations, not-for-profits, peak bodies in the U.S. that have tried to come up in fair-minded terms with an analysis, a method of evaluating mm -hmm. whether over time, let's say, a Kindle, you know, is actually better for the environment than all the books you read in other formats. 
And there's massive competition, there's massive disagreement, and the academics that are involved in doing this work, again, haven't come up with anything they can quite agree on mm. because there are so many different factors you need to bear in mind, right? So, for example, just to give you oh. one instance, the, um, the notion is that probably watching an hour's TV is actually just as ecologically uh, destructive as or has the same carbon footprint as reading the day's newspaper, all the way from the printing of it to the transfer of it to wherever you live, to the light that you use when you turn on perhaps electricity to read it at night or early in the interesting, morning. Interesting, interesting. So, and 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 that doesn't take into account the making of the the computer or the making of the no, right? that's, that's just, just the, power, just the electricity for the for absolutely the, for the uh, for the viewing, yeah, versus yeah. the entire. Um, energy train for the paper. Exactly. And when you think about Astounding. the books that, that you and I love to buy secondhand, or maybe used to love to buy secondhand, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, the fate of the book at the end of the day is either to be recycled fairly easily, or it's to be handed on to a loved one, or to you know, go into some musty corner, whatever it is. But basically, its carbon footprint impact ends once you've got it, pretty mm. much. The problem with the cell phones, the tablets, the computers, and the new TVs that we have is that they are not simply left around in a corner. They're actually disposed of. They're regarded as, they're rendered completely obsolete really, really, really fast. And then the issue becomes where they go and what happens to them after that, the impact that they leave. Which is, uh, again, many, many uh, different dimensions, including the burning of the plastic coverings of wires, all sorts of kind of home do-it-yourself um, recycling efforts that have their own carbon footprint. Absolutely. So often they are burnt and they do the same damage that we're used to from the old days in, in New York when everything would be burnt in an incinerator, for mm. example, and in lots of parts of the world too. Or they're buried in landfills, in which case they, the poisons and chemicals, the carcinogens, of which there are dozens in all of them, make their way into the a landfill, or therefore to the water supply, the water table, I mean, you name it. Or they're recycled unsafely by people, mostly unsafely, in search of the various valuable minerals within them that could be reused. Uh, Unicor, which is the federal government's wholly owned kind of private sector body that basically manages the slave population, that is the, the federal prison population, mm. uh, you know, large numbers of them, as yeah. we know, uh, black and Latino men, uh, it has people recycling these gadgets extremely unsafely. But the vast majority of the recycling goes on in uh, West Africa, in southeast China, and right across India. Uh, there's plenty of it, too, in Brazil. And epidemiological studies, mostly done, I should say, by Nigerian, Chinese, Brazilian, and Indian scholars. This is not mm -hmm. one of these things where the West comes in and discovers a big problem. This is something where, if you like, indigenous science has been absolutely crucial has found you know, horrendous levels of uh, injury, illness, and, of course, also systemic, systemic pollution, what's called in this country environmental racism, mm. uh, right across many parts of the world, as a consequence often of our detritus. Nowadays, of course, with the burgeoning middle class in India and China, they're leaving behind their own detritus. You know, it occurs to me that I'm so interested in all of this and I'm so concerned about all of it that I dove right in with uh, with with my specific questions. And I haven't I didn't give you a chance to kind of just outline what the what the book is, what the what 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 you're what you're attempting to do um, 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, can I tell my story about why I, I was interested? Ten years ago, uh, a friend of mine that you know, I think Andrew Ross mm -hmm. and I were uh, in China and we went in a sense undercover, though that's making it sound more romantic than it was, with the Hong Kong Christian Industrial Council into southeastern China, not to see the recycling places, because I certainly wasn't really thinking of those issues, but to meet the people who were making, in those days, mostly uh, computers and photocopy machines. And they were living in compounds. They were all young women aged 16 to 21, but some, frankly, probably younger. They were required to work, live, and not in the sense of a groovy downtown loft for an artist or critic. Mm. They had to be in these places many, many hours of a day. They were given a Sunday afternoon off where they had about six hours free. And in, during that time, they would be walking quite a long distance in order to meet the girls from their same village who'd been carefully separated, cordoned off from them, and put into a compound factory far enough away that there'd be no sense of solidarity. But they managed to make a sense of solidarity by meeting halfway on a little trek in order to share afternoon tea, essentially. Well, we met them while they shared their afternoon tea, and they talked about their working conditions. This was an extraordinary wake-up call for me. Mm. And maybe a year later, when I was, for the first time, living out in California, Andrew sent me a report by people from the Basel Action Network, who were folks involved in trying to get the Basel Accords, which is the name for the international treaty that tries to prevent any kind of export of electronic waste or e-waste, a report of the, the living conditions of those people at the other end of the cycle. And I suddenly began to think, gosh, you know, I'm meant to be somebody interested in textuality, meaning, but also reception, but also the production and the creation of meaning, the whole political economy, the whole political technology of culture. I'm missing something here in thinking through the true entire life of the commodity sign. And so Richard mm. Maxwell, my co-author, and I, who were contracted to write a book on political economy of the media, when we started talking and thinking about this, I think we both realized from differing perspectives, we wanted to track that entire life of the sign. Mm. And that's what the book endeavors to do. So whilst it's called Greening the Media, media here includes the print medium, and we go right back to the beginnings of it, you know, to when vellum and parchment and so on were being used in China and in Andalus in the 12th and 13th centuries to see what the ecological impact was from back then. And we use, for example, Melville wrote some very moving prose that I'm sure you've read uh, about uh, life in the, in the print rooms for the women and the dust that's being stirred up and so on. Um, Italo Calvino, lots of other writers, write about garbage, um, write in very evocative ways about the garbage of the stuff that they're making and that they leave behind. There are plenty of artists who do this too. So we found there were many people commenting on it in really interesting ways in the art world. There were many scientists working seriously on it. The industries themselves work seriously on it. But people in the humanities and the social sciences academically had left it out. And people writing the history of the book, the history of television, the history of cinema had left it out. So we thought we could make some kind of contribution that way. There's some kind of joke about um, vellum and footprints, but I'm just going <laughs> to let that go. Do you know this uh, book called um, Factory Girls? 
Oh, I've heard of it. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Very, very interesting book about um, the life of the the women working in the factories all along the, uh, you know, outside of Hong Kong and, uh, and a a very kind of different picture of, of what it means to be in that position from the, from the point of view of the women who she would sometimes go home with them to their village where they had kind of, were now the most important people in their villages. Uh, Even the elder men would kind of bow to them. There's there's a version of the story of factory labor in China, which is very different than the one that we're we're used to taking all the way through to a kind of Mike Daisy level. Yeah. No, and you make a very good point, of course, in terms of relative deprivation, things are getting better in all kinds of ways for these folks compared to what was the case in the past. And so... There are lots of arguments that are made to say you get interesting new gender dynamics because of the earning capacity of young women, uh, as well as age dynamics as far as their relation back, relations back home are concerned. And, of course, that argument can always be used, and it has a certain validity. I don't think it applies at the other end of the cycle where we're more concerned, which is at the level of recycling. Mm. Because, I mean, yes even though they may be exploited, these people are living in more or less sanitary conditions. They are getting a wage. They have a place to live. They are earning more than their parents ever did. They're able to contribute in many cases to the well-being of their villages. Although local governments and the wider governmental forms in many Chinese areas are not enforcing properly both wage and occupational health and safety accords. But nevertheless... They're doing better, that's right, and there's lots of evidence to suggest it's so, as well as evidence to suggest that it's not so. I mean, it's ambivalent on both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, these arguments about the Foxconn people, uh, the big Taiwanese company that employs a million individuals in China to make products for, amongst others, Apple. Right. And the suicides that have taken place at their plants and the evidence that says, well, given the proportion of people suiciding versus not, this is actually no big deal. I mean, of course, it's tragic yes, as an individual right. story, but there's no evidence because of, in percentage terms, that this group of people suiciding is any greater than it would be for an equivalent number doing anything at all or in any given space, right? Those yes, arguments, right? right? That, that, um, and I appreciate that. But when it comes to recycling, I don't think any kind of argument of that sort can be made because it's all illegal. Uh, it frequently involves extremely young women, so not 16 to 21, I mean 6 to 8-year-olds, operating in completely unsanitary conditions, not operating as, in a sense, subcontractors to big multinationals, but rather operating in the black economy, as it's called, mm-hmm. right? Uh, such that when you or I dump our computer or our TV set at the local recycler, we think, we hope, it gets properly treated, or when we simply dump it at the bottom of the garden and hope that the city takes it away, in many cases, it makes its way to the countries I mentioned earlier, to West Africa, to China, to India, to Brazil, to Mexico. And then it's sold on in a market through to endless numbers of small businesses that end up with people who are paid virtually nothing to poison themselves, to burn themselves, essentially to kill themselves at very young ages as a consequence of the recycling they do that then permits the gold, the copper, the whatever it may be Mm -hmm. to come back into the system, be recycled and in fact possibly turn up in your brand new but soon to be obsolete gadget. So there I think there's very little argument to be made because there's no occupational 
health and safety uh, policing. There's no proper regulation of wages. There's nothing of even the kind we see when it comes to the formal subcontractors at the production end. So in a lot of these cases, um, and this is based partly on some images that I've seen of people doing this kind of work, it seems like they're just at a a dump somewhere. It's not a workplace at all. It's not a... Um, That's absolutely true, right? And so they're and they're and they're kind of getting paid by the pound, uh, the way people who recycle um, on the streets of L.A. Yeah, um, yeah, and their, and their yep. materials. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there have been some interesting exposés of this by sixty minutes here in the U.S. on, on I think CBS, mm-hmm. and also by Panorama in the U.K. Current Affairs show. And in a sense, there's a long heritage to this. I mean, you mentioned people doing that recycling on the streets of L.A. Well, you know, Karl Marx wrote about rag pickers in Europe as being, in a sense, at the bottom of society. I have one of those Google alerts for the word rag picker in English. Uh And what's interesting is that the Indian media, much of which, of course, is is in English, Mm -hmm. has stories about rag pickers breaking the law or being murdered, I would say, six times a week that come through to me. So this is a profession, an occupation that has a very long and very complex history that goes back essentially to the beginning of urban Europe Mm -hmm. and the need to have people who would literally take away night dirt, you know, the fecal matter of the wealthy. And also were the people who, when it came to creating culture, were those who did exactly the rag picking that produced the physical materials from recycled clothing that became what stuff was printed on before paper was synthesized as you know the ideal technology for the book and the newspaper so there's a very long history it's something that's in, happening in front of us now today um and these people are the abject of the abject in many cases yeah and the images you saw sadly are extremely representative of what that life is like in the global south now of course there are a couple of um big what can be done questions that follow from this. And the one obvious one is on the political level, and the other is on the level of individual choice. If there are these very different metrics being used and uh, very impossible to figure out um, what we're supposed to do, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, (laughs) quite. Well, I think in terms of the political level, then there's a doctrine called extended producer responsibility, or EPR, which is basically saying to the companies that you buy your gadgets from, that I buy my gadgets from, you know, when you make a new kind of software that means that the gadget that I owned can't be upgraded anymore and simply doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you engage in so-called upgrades that actually don't assist me in any way, but I need them in terms of my job or I need them in some other sense you should be responsible for taking back the physical object, the hardware that I purchased from you and that you have now deliberately (laughs) rendered obsolete. You know, that old doctrine from the 40s and 50s, built-in obsolescence. Mm -hmm. So that doctrine of extended producer responsibility where they've got a kind of cradle-to-grave mandate to deal with the life and death of the the object uh, is a very important thing to push in government. Here in the United States, because we're a federal system, we have a patchwork piecemeal attitude to this. We have different kinds of legislation in different states and different municipalities. But the fact is the majority of states have now passed different kinds of legislation. It's different in California from what it is in Indiana, for instance, that 
that try to push for some kind of extended producer responsibility. Now, of course, that often means, getting to your second point about what personal individual consumers can do, that a bounty is put onto your computer, but you're going to pay more because mm -hmm. shareholders sure as heck don't want to, so the corporation is going to push it onto you. We need to make sure that that isn't the case, that actually the shareholders and the corporations themselves see this as built into the original price and not something that they add on to the price or, or extract from us at the other end. We also need here in the United States to get the U.S. federal government to sign on to and genuinely police these Basel Accords, which are the attempts to make sure there isn't any export of these goods. Because, by the way, there are perfectly competent, technologically able systems of recycling, even television sets, possibly the hardest devices to recycle of all manufacturers, that we have in the U.S., that they have in all the, the major dumpers, Japan, Britain, Australia, all these countries can do it. It just costs more than mm. sending it offshore. So we need to make certain that the federal government signs on to the international treaties that police this, that it engages in much more careful policing of the export of these uh, goods when they go on to their post-consumption life. We need to make sure that this isn't just left up to the self-regulation that capitalism is so keen on, but instead is subject to serious state participation because, you know what, self-regulation hasn't worked. At the consumer level, I think the main thing is, given that we're still at a point where it's hard to be a truly educated consumer about this because the science isn't there and it isn't being circulated in ways that let you know, but to stop and think each time you're considering a new purchase as to whether you need to make it of a new gadget and why you want it, that's a good thing to do. When you're dealing with your particular retailer or if you're buying it directly from the company, ask them about these questions of recycling. When you're doing a search with your browser uh, on Google or whatever it might be, or you are uh, using iTunes to download a song, uh, you're a consumer, you have some significance in all of this, ask Google, ask Facebook, ask iTunes about where their server farms are, how the server farms are powered. Google's trying to be kind of good about this, but a lot of the others still use coal-powered and nuclear-powered energy for their server farms. What are you doing to make all this greener? You know, that's really important. If you work in an institution that has major purchasing policies when it comes to printers or it comes to television sets, then get that institution, if it's not doing so already, to think about the impact of the particular printing systems and so on that it uses, what the take-back policies are of the companies and so on. And, of course, always try to think about the life of the commodity sign, if I can go back to that. So that it's not just the moment when it's working or not working perfectly for us and we're enjoying ourselves with it, but who made it, how did it get to me, and where is it going to go after me, and what's going to happen to it then? Fantastic. Thank you. I, I want to ask one, one last uh, question as a kind of coda. Um, uh, I found it very interesting what, what you had to say about uh, Rupert Murdoch and, and, and Fox's um, green policy. Um, uh, a little kind of counterintuitive, obviously, uh, for a lot of us. Um, t tell us about that. Yeah. One of the interesting things is that all the major movie studios here in Southern California – basically have some very interesting policies to try to cut down their carbon footprint. 
Perhaps the most interesting one is, you know, the allegedly evil, and in fact evil, News International, News Corporation, Fox, depending on what it's called, you know, what it's called depends on where you are in the world, where there's a controlling interest of Rupert Murdoch and his nepotistic idiot uh, children. Sorry, did I say that? Anyway, sorry, where Mr. Rupert Murdoch, citizen of the world, I, whichever country he wishes to exploit and run, uh, is the, uh, the guy in charge. Mm-hmm. Now... Here in the United States in particular, because of Fox News Channel, which is uh, a climate change denier par excellence, many of us associate anti-science and particularly anti-ecological policies with Fox. But hang on a minute and hear something interesting. Because in 2007, the aforementioned Rupert Murdoch convened the first ever, and I think so far possibly only, meeting of all employees of News International. That's hundreds of thousands of people. Turkey, Fiji, the United States, right? Simultaneous hookup. God knows what the carbon footprint of that was. (laughs) In which he said, climate change is real. We're contributing to it. Here's our carbon footprint, which they were estimating at hundreds of thousands of tons a year, as a consequence of all the different businesses that we're engaged in. We want to make a commitment that we'll be carbon neutral by the end of 2010. Now, they've missed that, by the way, but they've gone a long way towards it. They may be there now, I'm not sure. And to do that, we're going to make all kinds of incentives economically to various people within the organization. We're going to appoint point people as managers who are going to do, in a sense, green vetting of everything that we're involved in. So, for example, 24, at one stage, one of the most popular TV shows in in the world, something that... I would deride as far-right vigilantism and white hypermasculinity of a grotesque kind, uh, despite the various defenses of it that Stoner Sutherland makes, was the first ever carbon-neutral primetime action-adventure network TV show in the United States as a yeah. consequence of that commitment by Murdoch. And Fox News itself, as a studio, is greener than you'll find at places like NBC, which will claim always to be the green network and have their powering down of their lights and so on routinely. It's one of the model green studios in the world. That's remarkable because uh, 24, of course, uh, uh, has a larger carbon footprint than uh, the new girl. It's it's (laughs) blowing up a lot of things. uh, Absolutely. A lot of helicopters, a lot of of blowing things up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can all be cynical about offsets policies, but they've invested in them very seriously, and I think they may well work. So, you know, the fact is the guys made a very serious commitment. What it means is that the political economy of the entire corporation matters But the contradiction between that political economy and its particular audience targeting of essentially uneducated, angry white men in the suburbs and the country, namely Fox News, will not be overdetermined by that prevailing political economy. Mm -hmm. You know, Fox News will continue to peddle the lies that its owner knows to be lies because its good audience targeting brings him money and brings him political influence because on all other issues, he's at one with its politics. And the fact that at a material, everyday level, it's one of the greenest networks we have in the world, is irrelevant to the texts that it produces. Well, thank you very much, Toby Miller. Toby Miller is the author of Greening the Media. Uh, This is the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Tom Lutz. Thanks for listening. 